Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And if you have a Red Pew Bible, that's actually page number 919. And again, I want to encourage you to, to, to open your Bibles, to be able to follow along with me. Uh, my goal in uh, representing the Word is to be faithful to the representation of what it says. And it's important for uh, our hearing to be able to evaluate too, but with, a, with an interest to, to know exactly what God would have us to do and to, to follow it. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, on page 919, and, and if you don't have a personal Bible, um, we, we have these pew Bibles, but you could freely take that home with you if you wanted to as a gift from us. Uh, we, uh, we don't hold them here. We, we have a supply of these, and uh, if you even know of someone who would like to have a Bible, um, you could certainly freely give a Bible from our pew uh, to them. We periodically go through and, and replenish as needed. And that would be a joy for us to be able to pass that on to others. Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 through 8. Let's uh, read this, this passage together. In getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Sun Tzu's Art of War is a masterpiece of military strategy. One key strategy that he advocates is the use of strategic chaos to throw one's enemy off balance by getting them to doubt what's going on in their environment. The theory is uh, to overwhelm an enemy, throwing them off balance. And if chaos can be used by people made in the image of God, then how much more could it be that our God himself can use chaos to create strategy for outcomes that we may not fully always understand in the moment. See, chaos for humans causes a disorientation. We, we, uh, we're not able to deal with all the moving pieces that are happening around us, and they seem to be infinite impossibility for us. We may not see how it could fit within our system of understanding. But what if that system that we are living in is larger and more and larger than ourselves and is arranged by an infinite creator? What if that infinite creator, though, who organizes and allows us to experience what we think is chaos is intending it for good? 
we can't wrap our minds around highly complex world, we often call it random. We say, okay, well, I, you know, why did that squirrel run out in the road in front of us? And I jerked the wheel. It feels very <laughs> random to us that that squirrel, and there's no cars all around me. It was the one squirrel and I was the one car. And so we jerk, you know, hoping not to hit that little critter. But that's just a piece of our strange world that we live in. We have weather patterns that don't seem to make sense to us. We have money markets that just seem to be beyond the scope of our, even if you take a cup of coffee and you try to pour milk into it, there's, it seems chaotic, doesn't it? How the, this is really deep folks. <laughs> the coffee creamer diffuses, it appears so random, but yet it operates underneath, okay, anyway. Right? But there is an underlying order, though, at times, to what we would perceive to be disorder. And I'm purposely slowing down the pace of these miracles that we're looking at, and, and you may actually think, man, this is a chaotic way to start a service, a sermon. I wonder if he has purpose to where he's going. I can rest assured, rest assured, I do have purpose. And I'm slowing down here the pace of these miracles to focus on the sixth, the sixth miracle of ten. Because there is introduction of a bit of chaos into the minds of those who hear and observe what's going on in the healing of this paralytic. Jesus deliberately throws everyone off balance by what he says. He's creating in the minds of others chaos by his words. It's a very remarkable shift in pattern because to this point, Jesus's words have been creating peace out of disorder. There has been to this point, uh, you know, his words have been very concise. He, he commanded the demons to flee with just one word and order was created. And he settled the sea with not much. He, uh, he, he cleansed the leper by saying, be clean. Very simple. Order coming out of disorder. And yet he adds words here in the midst of this miraculous healing of a paralytic, and it creates disorder. Now, chaos had been introduced already in the last incident. The pagan minds who saw this this whole, these demonic possessed men as being whole, when they see him, see these men, in their minds there's a bit of chaos that takes place. And they ask Jesus to leave. Here, Jesus is speaking to his own people, and the words he uses are choice words, deliberate, so that there can be a problem. Jesus makes a claim to be able to forgive sins. And if you will, this, this uh, chaos miracle, the set of three chaos experiences, creates another kind of chaos. He categorically forgives sin in a way that shakes the religious assumptions of his own people. What sort of man is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. What sort of man is this who can make the claim to forgive sin? See, Jesus of Nazareth cannot be put into a concise system of our own making. 
He does not fit within a purely rational frame of reference. His power over nature and sin forces us to decide whether we're for him or we're against him. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And this leads us to recognize that every man, woman, and child must decide for themselves who Jesus is. It's a question that will either create calming of heart or it will create chaos in your soul. It will either create order or disorder, peace, or it may increase your own anxiety. And as we follow the frame of a flow of these miracles and their teaching, we begin to see that life transformation begins when you believe that Jesus has authority over your eternal destiny. Jesus' words create a chaos. They create chaos in the souls of some, but yet at the same time, there are others who are redeemed. There is a tipping point that is happening here, and now people have to think about what Jesus is saying about himself, and, and there is resistance starting to take place. Can Jesus really be the one who can claim to pardon and also then to judge? By what power is Jesus authorized to do what he's doing? There is a tipping point. There's a, there's a, a moment of truth for people. And as the flow of these miracles will progress, we're going to come at the very end of the grouping of 10 miracles. At the very end, Matthew 8, 34, we see these words, excuse me, verse 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 34. The Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. That's not the conclusion that they were supposed to come to. In looking and seeing the work of Jesus, the Holy Spirit should have been affirmed. And the chaos by what Jesus does in this moment by saying, I can forgive sins, causes some to say, I, I don't, that's far enough. I'm not going along with this, Jesus. And they start to narrate a different story. They start to claim, make claim that he's doing so with the power of the prince of demons. A lot of chaos in their minds. And the resistance in Jesus' ministry really starts here. Now, Jesus is asking people directly to believe that he has the divine right as the son of God to pardon or to execute judgment. And this is quite an interesting situation. Because up to this point, many would have said of Jesus, well, he is a good teacher. I mean, we sat before him at the foot of the sermon of the, of the mountain, and we heard his beautiful words, and there was crowds, and Jesus taught and he encouraged people. And Jesus was a good teacher, but he is a whole lot more. I think it's important for us to reflect a little bit about his teaching and why he is a good teacher, as well and kind of see that in contrast you see Jesus taught and he encouraged people who were on the margins of society they were people that were underneath the thumb of the elite 
underneath the boot, if you will. The elite had made the people's lives very difficult. They were just trying to make their way in the world. They were trying to follow the law of Moses as best they could. And life in a Roman world in Palestine was, was very difficult. It was challenging. And so to keep God's laws and maintain a kosher life, it was challenging. And so when they heard Jesus teach, Jesus taught differently. He, he was, at the same time, he was rigorous about the law, but yet he was also a generous teacher. Jesus' teaching was rigorous, first of all, and he was a good teacher because he didn't twist the law. He was rigorous because he took the law seriously. As is often the case, religious organizations can become calcified, they can become crusty, they can become legalistic, if you will. The maintenance of the system, or the way it has always been done, can take the chief place in the minds of people. Jesus, though, did not come to crash and burn the law of Moses as much as he was to coming to crash and burn the system that people had created around the law. Jesus was a good teacher because he recognized that the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that he was doing miracles with, was the same Holy Spirit who had written the law at the beginning. Jesus was a good teacher. He took the law seriously. But why did God, or why did the Son take the law seriously? He did so because the law actually reflects the character of his Heavenly Father. The Heavenly Father is pure, dazzling in beauty. God is without sin. And the law was designed to teach people a better way of life, a life of purity, a way that they might find happiness and wholeness underneath of a gracious and kind Heavenly Father. For example, turn back with me to Matthew chapter 5 for a moment, just one example in Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And so Jesus here is presenting a better way, a better way to live. <laughs> now, in our heart of hearts, we might say, boy, that sounds awfully harsh. That sounds like very cruel. But in contrast, Jesus is saying, no, to lust for another's spouse is actually going to do ruin to you. There is a better way to live. There's a better place for you in God's system. And Jesus knows that if you want to take a shortcut to get what you really want, you're going to get cut up along the way. And so he continues on in verse 31. It, 
in which he said, it is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let her, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And what Jesus is doing here is to say, you know, you can want something so badly that you can engineer reasons to get what you really want. And it can create a double life. See, the Pharisees had created workarounds to God's law. There was exceptions in God's law. Clearly, there was exceptions there. But they desired so much more to be with another woman that they figured out a rationale for no-fault divorce. But Jesus is saying, no, the end of that route is tumultuous because the end of that life is going to lead towards destruction because you've not dealt with the heart. You've not dealt with the heart. Yeah, these Pharisees, they wanted to keep the law, but yet they also really wanted something. And so they engineered ways to get around the law to get what they really wanted. And this permitted them to grow distant in their own marriage, and they found justification. You see, true happiness, Jesus was teaching, comes when a person takes time to examine their own hearts. So within a marriage, you may, you may feel very burdened by what's going on in your marriage, but Jesus is addressing the heart and saying, look, what's in your heart is causing the problem. And our unhappiness is directly related to our lack of contentment to live within the boundaries of God's law. There is this burden within ourselves. There is a desire for that which we cannot have. It's called our sin nature. And our lack of contentment exposes a divided heart. We're not whole. We're unhappy. We're discouraged. We're disturbed. But we want to have a wholeness of heart. And we think, well, if I just kind of go around what God says, I can achieve the happiness that I really want. Jesus is a good teacher because he's taking God's law seriously. But he is also honest about the law. He's honest and that's why he's a good teacher. He recognizes that it can't be this way. You have to take God's law seriously. We can't be hypocritical like these guys who rework the law. The Pharisees wouldn't deal with the sins in their own heart, but then they would step up their game. They would start to, you know, stand at the street corner and, and pray publicly so that people could say, oh, that's a good guy. But all the, time, all the while, he's committing adultery in his heart. He stepped up his game. He blew the trumpet and said, oh, I have all these alms to give. All the while, he's deceitful about himself before the law. Jesus knows our weakness. He's a good teacher. He doesn't diminish the value of the law, but yet he also provides what we desperately need. The resources, resources of the Holy Spirit to assist us in our weakness to obey him. And this is what makes Jesus' teaching so generous and so kind. He cared for people. He cared for people. 
So on the one hand, you hear the law and you, it, it communicates something of like holiness and you, you hear that you're not holy. Now what? You feel the weight of the judgment. But Jesus was generous because he cared for people and he extended the mercy of the, his heavenly father for the forgiveness of sin. We have a sin nature that cannot perform to the level that's required to enter into heaven. On the other hand, Jesus gives us what we desperately need. Jesus in his sermon offers the opportunity for wholeness of heart to sinners, to find the happiness that they so desire. He didn't promise perfection, rather he offered wholeness of heart through grace and faith alone. And so if we want to flourish in God's world, we must take God's law seriously, and then we have to admit that we have a need for grace. We have to recognize the poverty of our own spirit. We need to then seek for forgiveness as we were taught in the Lord's Prayer. And then we begin to follow Jesus' teaching by faith. We live in a world that's governed by a kind and gracious Heavenly Father who knows all of our needs and who will provide them for us. And then we request the love of the Holy Spirit to fill our own hearts. We ask for that which we do not have and he will freely give it to us. And if you're honest about your need with what you seek and you come to your Heavenly Father, there's no reason that he won't give you what you ultimately desire. No one wants to be a hot mess their whole life, right? I mean, honestly, the self-help market that you can find betrays this truth that many of us are seeking for something better. We want wholeness of heart. We want to be in a better place. And our culture is so sick with seeking self-liberation. I know there are genuinely hurting people who, do, who are really confused about their sexual orientation. They are really genuinely confused. And, and this world offers them entrapment that they can't find their way out. Liberation from self actually begins first by looking into God's word and recognizing who we are. We are sinners in need of deep grace. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so the self-help market will not provide what we want. Only our Heavenly Father can give us what we deeply need. See, Jesus can be rigorous about the law, but he is also compassionate because he cares for people. He's generous. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Sinners hurt themselves by running away from God's law, not towards God's law. Where the source of true happiness is found. You know, we think that we might have a better way of organizing the chaos in our world. But it creates more chaos. We have an infinite gracious heavenly father who has organized the system and yet he is compassionate at the end of the 10 miracles we're going to come to these verses but it's helpful for us to see Jesus in this light now because when Jesus looked at the crowds 
He looked with eyes of compassion. He looked at them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Later in Matthew 11, just even a short while after this, Jesus again looks on the crowds and says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, on you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, the center of the Sermon on the Mount is actually the disposition of our Heavenly Father. The center of the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. And the very center of the Lord's Prayer is this. Uh, that we will be forgiven by our Heavenly Father as we forgive others. What a beautiful center to it all. But we must recognize, first of all, the weight of our own sin, but then turn to him for the forgiveness that we desperately need. See, Jesus was a good teacher. He was rigorous about the law, but he was also generous in his application of hope and grace and mercy. And so it's important that we see these elements in the mix of what's happening here, that some people, even when hearing this, couldn't and weren't willing to come. They put up walls of resistance and chaos entered into their world because they loved their system more than they loved the Savior who was offering grace and mercy. Jesus is more than a good teacher and we need to recognize that he is also divine. Not just a good teacher, he's also divine. You would think that such a glorious offer of the gospel to people would just you just there'd be hundreds of people just coming forward. But when the gospel of forgiveness is preached, it often heals, but many do resist. See, the boat, we're coming to the text, the boat is the link between all of these three miracles, these chaos miracles, if you will. Jesus invites people to, to humble themselves and to follow his words, and then he invites them to get into their boat, and then he takes them to the other side. Now the boat is coming back again to the very same community that he had previously been in, to Capernaum. Jesus originally left that crowd, and now he's coming back to that crowd. People had experienced in that little boat the significance of of Jesus' words and following his words obediently with faith created outcomes of life transformation. As broad as the road that leads to destruction, those that enter it are many. Many are called, but few are chosen. Is this fair? Is this just? Why doesn't he just save everyone? whether they want to or not. Well, I think it's important that we recognize that Jesus in his, his generousness is also allowing people to figure it out. And in verse 1, Jesus, I think we need to recognize he's authorized in his own self as a divine person to be able to see beyond the physical. He sees beyond the physical. Back in chapter 9, verse 1, we see this. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. 
And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Back in Capernaum, the crowd has returned. Here in his own city, verse 1, we, we hear it called. This is Capernaum. This is his base of operations. Nazareth had rejected him and turned him away. And Jesus encounters a paralytic. We don't know exactly what the reasons were for his inability to walk. It's not given to us in great detail. But we do know that from Luke and Mark's teaching that this is the individual that when the crowd was gathered around the house, they thought of another way to get to Jesus. They went up on the roof, and they started taking apart the roof to let him down through the roof. I don't know about you, but if someone started taking apart my roof, I wouldn't be too happy. I wouldn't be too happy. But the friends who, who are coming to Jesus with a lame man are overcoming the social awkwardness of taking apart someone's roof. Like, that, that's not a barrier to them. I have some within my family that are a bit nervous at times to talk to other people, maybe adults or whatnot. They feel awkward about those kinds of conversations. But somewhere along the line here, these folks overcame that awkwardness because what they desired from Jesus was greater than the awkwardness they were experiencing. And Jesus looks at what's going on, the friends who come with this, and recognizes they're doing this because they believe that, that I am their only hope. And this act of faith impresses Jesus. It really impresses Jesus. And Jesus says to this man, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. This miracle begins to make clear that Jesus really knows a lot about people, even before they come to him. He can see right through them. He can see through each and every one of us. We can't hide from him who sees and knows all things. My sister has uh, been sending me short videos every once in a while of her uh, her little one, her youngest boy, Ethan, and uh, he, he likes to play peekaboo with her, and, and I know my kids used to like to do that, but I'm enjoying seeing it through her eyes now, and uh, there is a joy of a child pretending to be able to hide from their mother. It's cute when a child does this. It's not cute, when, though, when sinners think that they can hide from God. None of us can hide from him. And when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, some in the room are saying within their own minds, this man is blaspheming. And so what Jesus said created chaos deliberately in their minds. But what he does next drives them to complete distraction. In verse 4, in verse 4, he casts judgment upon their thoughts. He can see beyond the physical. He knows exactly what they're thinking. And in verse 4, he says, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, 
perceiving their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? And then he asked them, you know, what's easier? I could, I could simply say, hey, rise and walk, or I can say, son, your sins are forgiven, and what's the difference then does it, does it really make? And this is really disturbing to them hearing this, because every prophet that they had ever encountered before, like Elijah, Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, he commanded people to, to walk, to even be raised from the dead, but he, he didn't forgive sins. And so Jesus is driving them to distraction here by claiming the authority not just to be able to heal, but also to forgive sins. And if this were blasphemy, what Jesus said, would God listen to Jesus? I think the answer would be no. So the Pharisees who really in their own heart of hearts, they don't have a love for God. They don't have a real love for his law. They create all these little workarounds. They don't really, they're kind of caught in the corner like a snake. They, they, they're, they're snapping. They're exposed. And they start to make claims and statements that he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Reality is, Jesus is authorized to pardon sinners who believe. In verse six, is, 6 through 7, we see this. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose and went home. How does Jesus have authority to forgive? Clearly, this miraculous confirmation signifies that he has authority to forgive. And Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Again, the scribe, as it says here in verse 3, some of the scribes said to themselves, maybe this was the scribe who, who wanted to join Jesus' boat earlier on. It's very possible. Would have heard again the phrase, son of man. And the scribe who said, look, there's no place for the son of man to lay his head, heard this now, that he has the authority to forgive sins. Very remarkable. Daniel's vision that it's a reference to in Daniel chapter 7 Daniel saw a vision of one like a son of man coming to the throne of the Ancient of Days. And to him was given dominion and a kingdom. A kingdom has authority. In Daniel's writings, there is a description of someone divine but having a human body. He's like a son of man. He's, he, he has humanity on him, but he looks divine. There's radiance to him. And so what Jesus is doing, he's laying claim here that he shares God's prerogative to be able to cast out sins or also to punish sins. He has the authority, and he's making this claim that he is the divine son of God in human flesh, come for this very purpose. 
They're remarkable. He's claiming that he has the right to just simply cancel sins. But what about the legality of it? What about the legality of it? Why does Jesus have the authority to forgive? See, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins because he tasted death for everyone. He tasted death for every person who has ever lived. See, he was the innocent lamb that all the pictures of the Old Testament pointed to. He was the substitutional lamb that would take the punishments that we all deserve. And since he's taken the punishment, he holds the keys. He is permitted to forgive. He is the one who is also permitted to judge. Because he is the one who has taken all of the sins. It's all been laid upon him. All that authority is now handed over to the Son. And he is perfectly qualified to pardon all who come to him for mercy because legally he has paid it all. There's nothing more that you can do but other, come, other than to come to him for mercy. To say, I need you to forgive me of the sins that I have committed that placed you upon that cross. We're now all underneath of his mercy or potential judgment. Outside of the mercy of Jesus, we are all lost to judgment because of our sinful rebellion that put him on that cross. So Jesus is now authorized to pardon sinners. He's then also authorized to judge sinners those who refuse to come to him for mercy. And so this last element here about him, you know, he's, he's more than a good teacher, but he is also divine. Life transformation is not going to happen until we recognize his divinity and his authority over our future destiny. Jesus is authorized to bring judgment upon disbelief as well. In verse 8, of chapter 9, we see the reaction of the crowds. They were afraid. They were afraid. And they also glorified God, who had given such authority to men. The word fear there is remarkable because it's, it's, a, it's the, the idea of like standing beside Niagara Falls. Like, I have, I've have you ever, has anyone been to the Niagara Falls and gone underneath the falls and like had all the mist coming on top of you? They give you those little really silly plastic things that don't do a cent of good for you. You're soaked when you come off that, out from underneath that waterfall. But the volume, the power in that water is overwhelming. And I, I don't like heights. I don't like any of that. Like I'm fearful of the power and what it might do, like, I, I'm even fearful of myself. I might throw myself over just because. I don't know. I get really weird about that stuff. But there is a respect for power that's inherent in this moment. The crowds recognize, and they're afraid. Well, why are they afraid? I mean, Jesus healed a man. Oh, no, he, he healed a man, but he also showed that he's the one that we have to go to 
for the forgiveness of our own sins. This authority had been given to him. Now the crowd was still a little bit confused about what exactly all this meant. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, the scribes, they understood exactly what Jesus was claiming. It was creating chaos in their system. They had all these little workarounds to do what they really wanted to do. But they weren't willing to humble themselves inside their own hearts. And so what they revert to is gaslighting. By now, I'm sure most of us understand the term gaslighting. But it's the idea of creating a false narrative so that the person that we want to influence is thrown off balance. It comes from an old movie in the, in the 40s where a husband seeks to create mental instability in his spouse. And he keeps turning down the gaslights, but then saying, no, 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 you've got the problem. You've got the problem. Don't believe what you see. It's actually within your head. This is exactly what the Pharisees are doing. They're saying, Jesus heals people, but he's doing it through the power of Satan. That's a false narrative. And they're trying to influence people not to believe what they see with their own eyes. And later, Jesus is going to call this the unpardonable sin. can't, for time's sake, go into all of what that means exactly, but I personally believe that attributing that which is of the Holy Spirit is, to the works of Satan, is an unpardonable sin. Because you have allowed your heart to become so hardened to truth that you're so willing to believe a lie, it paralyzes you like Pharaoh and takes you into outer darkness. So when the gospel is preached, some respond to the truth, but there are others who dig their heels in deeper. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a very bold claim. Yes, Jesus was a good teacher. He was kind, he was generous, he was merciful. And the chief exhibit of that mercy is his willingness to forgive sinners. Jesus is more than a good teacher. He is also divine. And true liberty and true freedom can come to us knowing that we are forgiven through the Son. When we submit to his system, we find that the true freedom that we look for. And this is the essence of where life transformation begins. It begins when you believe that Jesus has authority over your eternity, eternal destiny. When the good news of the kingdom is preached, not everyone will respond to the truth. But the truth of Jesus Christ will create in your heart if you're willing to believe it. If you will put your faith and trust in him, respond to his teaching, there are powerful changes that will take place inside of your heart that will affect your life. He healed 
people of lifetime physical ailments, he also heals people of spiritual ailments that keep us from the happiness that we so desire. We have a wonderful, wonderful God that we worship, a very generous and loving Heavenly Father who gives us his own son. Jesus' mercy is greater than his judgment, but he will have to judge those who do not put themselves underneath of him. So I invite you, turn from the sin. Don't, don't try to work, make, you know, make these workarounds like, I'm just going to be a better person tomorrow. It's not going to cut it. Jesus gives mercy, but you must humble yourself and come to the cross. You must put your faith and trust exclusively in him for his mercy. He will forgive. He is a merciful God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for time this morning in this text and also in 